Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. We're finally at the end of another great season of Let's Go Together. Thanks for joining me once again as we met with the adventurous people who travel and the amazing people at the destinations we traveled to. Before we call it a season, let's take a look back at some of our favorite conversations for one last clip show. Our first few clips come from my conversation from episode nine with Terry Beswick the executive director of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco's Castro District, a vibrant and historic neighborhood for the queer community. Uh, gosh, I have to reach back for that one. Let's see. <laughs> in the mid 80s, I was actually a theater student at San Francisco State uh, University and um, you know, I was coming out of a heterosexual relationship and I was helping to start a community theater in San Francisco. And the AIDS epidemic was, of course, unfolding in San Francisco just as I was kind of coming out again uh, around my sexuality as I had been gay previously and I was sort of seeing myself as bisexual, but in, in a heterosexual relationship. And so that was my personal story at the time that I was walking through the Castro one day in 1985, 86, and there was a little protest going on at the Harvey Milk Plaza at Castro and Market Streets. And there was maybe, I don't know, 50 or 100 people there. And there was a, a young, very handsome man standing on a soapbox with a bullhorn. And he was exhorting the crowd to show up for a protest against discrimination against people with AIDS. And I was, I didn't know anybody with AIDS at the time. As I said, I was still coming to terms with my own identity as a gay man. And I was just like, really, well, I was attracted to the guy. <laughs> and I was also really riveted by the idea of that we could take action to fight AIDS together because I was living in fear at the time. Everyone was. It was a scary, terrible time. And so I went to a meeting to help to organize a protest. And within a couple of months, I had gone and done a civil disobedience action at the federal building in San Francisco, where we were protesting mandatory testing of HIV among Job Corps applicants and Peace Corps applicants. And, you know, it sounds like an obscure issue, but that's kind of how I got my start. And from there, I became a full-time activist, focusing mostly on AIDS for over 10 years. Later in the episode, Terry shared what he thinks makes the Castro so historic. A place that's historical for me, if 
for example, something happened for me there that I'll remember. And I mentioned earlier, you know, when I saw that cute guy at a rally at Castro and Market Street in 1986. So for me, that's the history of that corner, you know. And, you know, it's just so many thousands and thousands of people over the years have created memories and history in the Castro. It's changed a lot over the years, but we have to remember that prior to the 1970s, you know, it's mostly just like an Irish Catholic working class neighborhood. And then a couple of bars opened. And before you knew it, there was dozens and dozens of gay bars and businesses. And the streets are lined now with rainbow flags and we have the rainbow crosswalks, all which are just like marking territory in a way. But what makes it special for me is really the people, which includes the visitors, people that come there just to celebrate and to party or to meet somebody or to participate in a community activity. So it's the people and they come from all over the world. So if you come to visit the Castro, it's just like an international meeting place for LGBTQ people and allies and their admirers from all over the place. And yeah, and there's some great places there too. I mean, there's a lot of fun bars. For me, it's sort of like going to the French Quarter in New Orleans or, you know, the village in New York. And it has changed. A lot of people are frustrated that it's not as gay as it used to be. And there's just natural ebbs and flows around gay neighborhoods. And we see that happening all around the country as those gay enclaves become less gay, you know. I don't think the Castro is going to lose its gay card, you know, anytime permanently or completely. But we're also spreading out. We're spreading out everywhere. And we don't necessarily need to have that walled up little village that we used to have. So... What makes it special? I don't know. There's kind of a magic to it. Terry also shared some recommendations for travelers to the Castro. Let's see. One of my favorite places in the Castro is the Castro Theater. I think they're reopening now. If they're not, they will be very soon. But, you know, it's an old movie palace. And they've got a great Wurlitzer organ that plays before every showing. And it's just one of those movie-going experiences that just makes anything that you see there really fabulous. And so that's one of my favorite places. Of course, there's our museum in the Castro on 18th Street. And I think it's a great place to sort of get some context of the history and culture of the neighborhood. As I said, one of my favorite things to do in the Castro is just to walk through the neighborhood and watch the people. And I think we have a lot of great characters that uh, come through the neighborhood every day. There's also a Castro camera, and it's closed, of course, right now, but on Castro Street, it's the place where Harvey Milk had his camera store in the 1970s and also ran his campaigns for uh, office. And, you know, Harvey Milk was one of the first uh, openly gay people elected to public office, and I think the first in California. And that's kind of a go-to historic location. There's the bars also. I don't drink, but I love to go to the bars and just experience the fun scene there. One of my favorites is actually on the corner of Castro and Market Street. It's called Twin Peaks Tavern. 
Mm. It's been there for many years, and it's got these big plate glass windows. And, you know, it was one of the first bars that had big plate glass windows where you could see all the gay people inside. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a wonderful place to people watch, you know, with friends. There's also some favorite restaurants. Catch is my favorite restaurant, other than Orphan Andy's. Orphan Andy's, a 24-hour diner that serves great hamburgers and fries. And it's really historic, and my friends uh, Bill and Dennis run that place. But the Catch restaurant across the street from there, it's actually a historic location itself. It's where the uh, Names Project Quilt was founded in the 1980s. But now they have a wonderful seafood restaurant there. It also has a wonderful patio on the street, so you can uh, people watch from there. But, you know, I think the main thing, Kelly, is just like how you get there, because a lot of people come from downtown and from Fisherman's Wharf or whatever. And I think you can take a cable car from Fisherman's Wharf down to Market Street and then catch one of the historic F streetcars from around the world that run down Market Street to the Castro. And I think that's the only proper way to get there is on a cable car and a streetcar which takes you right into the middle of the Castro. And then just, you don't have to have any plans. You just wander around and go all the places. It's bound to be a fun way to spend some time. Our next clip comes from another guest who has deep ties with San Francisco. Margaret Cho is a trailblazing entertainer who built a career as an actor and comedian during a time where there were very few prominent Asian Americans in the industry. She shares some of her experience growing up alongside San Francisco's LGBTQ community. Yeah, I grew up in San Francisco and my parents owned a gay bookstore that they bought in 1977. So a lot of the employees were getting very excited about Harvey Milk. They were getting excited about gay politics. We had book signings and events at the store. Armistead Mopin would sign books, which was really a big deal. He wrote Tales of the City. Mm-hmm. series, which is a very, very big San Francisco gay, phenomenal success story. But the way that I looked into the world as a kid was through really gay eyes. <laughs> I really got a gay education and, you know, it was really great. I mean, it was really important. But the tragedy of that was having to see how amazing and exciting and fun the community was, and then to have it all go away with AIDS. That was really devastating. It really devastated the entire community. And, um, you know, the loss is really immeasurable. And when I look back, I actually see a lot of similar patterns of people using AIDS as a justification for their homophobic violence in the same way that people are using coronavirus as a justification for their anti-Asian violence. And so these things happen when people are under duress and they're not really, it has nothing to do with the disease, really. It's just this discrimination that already exists there that they're looking for any reason to act out on. Because if AIDS is bloodborne, you're not going to want to like get somebody's blood all over you. (laughs) Like it's like, exactly. it's so irrational. The same way of like, if Coronavirus is spread by yelling. Why are you going to yell at an Asian person in the street? Like, it's a very similar thing, but people will use any excuse to get their homophobic rage out, their racist rage out, whatever it is. Well, I would be at the bookstore every day, and 
doing my homework. It was kind of like where my parents were. So I would always be there. And then I started working there when I was a teenager and just hanging out with everybody. And it just really shaped my personality, you know, just to be around queer people all the time and to become close with all these different people. And then they would die. And it would be like really terrifying and so sad. And you didn't really know how to cope with it. And then with the dealing with the survivors too, a lot of the people, Mm -hmm. all of us had a sense of survivor's guilt around it and a sense of real shared trauma that wasn't really expressed in any way. There was a couple of movies about it, very little though, compared to the huge enormity of what was actually going on. So still there's not really a sense of how big and how terrible it was. Even though we all know, okay, this is like a big deal. A lot of it's pretty forgotten. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear a little bit more from Margaret before revisiting my conversation with Chef Mashama Bailey and her co-owner, John O. Morisano, about the restaurant The Gray in Savannah, Georgia. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. We continue our look back at season two with another clip from our conversation with Margaret Cho, where she shares how she got started doing stand-up comedy right in her backyard. Well, there was a comedy club upstairs from my parents' bookstore called The Rose and Thistle, and they would have this show called Even the Score, which was such a weird show, because you would buy tomatoes that were rotten in the entrance and then you would throw them at the performers and if you were really a good performer you wouldn't get tomatoes or anything they'd be like rotten fruit or whatever and I never got anything thrown at me <laughs> but I think because I was so young I was like 14 and people didn't understand like what I was there to do even so I was able to get by and being different being othered in comedy is actually currency so you're actually really well off if you're unusual And so I was able to do a lot of stuff there. I did a lot in San Francisco. I worked pretty consistently throughout my teens into my early 20s. I came to Los Angeles in 1991. And uh, I was very much poised to just try to get ahead no matter what that would look like. And um, so I did a lot of comedy shows. There's a lot of comedy on television then. And uh, so I was able to get by. I know I've asked you this, but when you're interjecting like your identity into your comedy, right, it's where you have this place where you can be a little rough and you can be critical, but in in a comedic way, like, is there a place where you think there's a line? Yeah, there's a line. I mean, I think it's about compassion and it's knowing that you have a real authority as a performer. And so you have to be very respectful of that authority and 
know that there's a way to wield it that's appropriate. But only, I think only you would know that. Only anybody would know exactly what that line is. But there is one. And there's a lot of cancel culture, too, that exists. And I think that cancel culture is actually noble because what we're trying to do is we're trying to regulate language so that it's fair. And that's fine with me. So in order to talk about difficult subjects, you have to have a lot more discretion and artistry around what you're doing. And I think that's the approach. So it just makes us better, I think, as artists to try to figure out what that line is and to cross it when we need to. Like with Terry, Margaret also shared what her favorite thing to do in San Francisco is. I like to go to San Francisco. I like to go vintage t-shirt shopping. I'm an avid collector of vintage t-shirts. And so I like to go to Hate Street, which is very commercialized, but there's still like a lot of great vintage stuff there. And I like to go and dig and find the most vintage rock t-shirts that are just so falling apart. The Shroud of Turin of rock t-shirts, which would probably be a Beatles shirt. I don't have a Beatles shirt yet, but I want like a, I saw one once that was like $800, but I didn't really like it because it was like a baseball one. And I was like, "Mm, it's kind of, mm." you want something that's like weirdly like not 80s. 80s is very bad news bears of rock shirts. That's not my favorite. It's got to be the right thing. So I'm always really, really looking. I do have a really magnificent Don't Squeeze the Charmin, Mr. Whipple, 70s t-shirt that is like my favorite and I can't even wear it because it's just falling apart. So I like comedy t-shirts as well. For our last segment, we head back to a former segregated Greyhound bus terminal in Savannah, Georgia that has been converted to the Grey, a renowned restaurant co-owned by James Beard award-winning chef, Mashama Bailey, and her business partner, Jono Morisama. In this next clip, Jono and Mashama share their experience of seeing the Jim Crow era building that will become their restaurant for the first time. The bus terminal, which houses the Gray, was an abandoned Greyhound bus terminal. It was kind of an amazing example of an art deco space in the South and in Savannah, and there were very few of those. It needed a preservation. And so I decided that I would take on the project of preserving this abandoned 1938 Greyhound bus terminal. And as soon as I closed on the building, I think that this secret desire I had had for most of my adult life to get into the restaurant business and be a restaurateur immediately came gushing out of me. So I decided to do that, which was a crazy idea in retrospect. And my wife pointed that out immediately, what a crazy idea it was. But the uncrazy part of me was that I knew I needed a business partner to do it because I had never run a restaurant. I had only eaten in restaurants. I had never worked in a restaurant, but I was in love with them. I always kind of call myself a restaurant rat because if there's one place I'd rather be over almost anywhere else, it's eating dinner in a restaurant. Inexpensive restaurant, great restaurant, hole in the wall, like all of them. I just love it. Coming to the good conclusion that I needed a business partner, I set out on a search for one. And I wanted that business partner to be somebody who could cook and somebody who knew sort of, I knew a little bit about running businesses, but I didn't know anything about cooking on a professional level, running a kitchen. And so I was looking for basically someone who was ready to make the move into the executive chef career, the executive chef point in their life. 
and started to meet people who were ready to do that. And they were mostly people who looked just like me. They were white men. They had tattoos. They were just doing their thing. And I, I really felt that I needed somebody, if this was going to be a successful restaurant, I felt that I needed somebody who was opposite of me. For me, the most interesting, like when I first met Jono, it was really warm. We hit it off right away. But I was a sous chef. I was sort of toward the end of my tenure at Prune, but I was basically writing a schedule and ordering food. I wasn't really running a kitchen. So when we met, I really was interested because, you know, it's like, all right, let's see. Yes, and okay, let's go to this interview. What can it hurt? Or let's meet this person. But the the clincher for me really to take the next step was not only was it in a Jim Crow era bus station, but it still had the same footprint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at the plans of the building or looking at the building on the blueprint, it really, I just was so curious about going down there to see it because I've never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of a building like this still in its same footprint. There's been changes or people don't talk about the space in that way, but I never really looked at it as, I never really was in this segregated space where you can feel the areas and the signage is basically still there. And I just was like, oh, I have to get down and see this building because this is so interesting. It's a great opportunity, yes, but I feel like the building was was a draw for me. It was a huge draw for me. I got down to the space and I was sort of not convinced that I could actually take on this challenge because it was like 100 seats here and 20 seats up there and 25 seats around the corner. And then outside, we're going to put picnic bitches. And then the kitchen is going to be right here in this little room. And then we're going to do all this stuff. And I was just like, uh, yeah, I don't know if this is going to work. And I got into the space and I was like, oh, I could do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I could do this. I can do this. I stood in the colored waiting section and I went through all of the segregated spaces and I just kind of listened to the building and walked through it. And I just felt like it was going to be, it was where I needed to be. It was absolutely where I needed to be. All of it, the opportunity of being an actual a partner in something and moving to another city, I was kind of open to all that stuff obviously, but the draw, like what really kind of got me on the plane down to Savannah was to see the space. Mashama describes the food at the Gray as Port City Southern food. At the risk of getting hungry myself, I asked Mashama to share what that meant and what made it so special. Oh, it's so rich. It's almost forgotten. There are so many beautiful things that have migrated to this part of the world because of the water, because of the fact that there is food here. Like you didn't have to roam to find any food. The food is right in the marshes, like the oysters and the shrimp and the crabs. There's protein here. So people settled here because they could eat, they could survive. A lot of things, it's hard to grow here because of the weather. You have to rotate crops in a certain way because of the heat. And so So you really, there has been some loss of things, but I think where we are now, there's a real opportunity to explore what other vegetables and foods that this region can grow or some things that they have once grown. I think that 
it's Port City Southern because it was settled and it was a major port in very early American history. So a lot of things have come here through those ports like pottery and like spices and pigs to be able to use those ingredients, use the fact that this was probably an international city for the most part, right? Those who could travel here, who was traveling, majorly traveling in the world back then, and take that international, that my New York City international experience, it just seemed like a really good fit to describe not only how I'm looking at the food, but where the food can go and also where the food has come from. Our conversation wasn't just about the food at the Gray. Mashama also shared some of her favorite local Savannah specialties. Devil crab is one of my favorite things. If it's on the menu, I want to order it and try it. I really like devil crab. I think it's just really, it's something I've seen my whole life and I never really get tired of it. And it's different from a crab cake. It's more of a bake. It's spicy. And it's a little bit of a specialty here, but you don't really find it. Anything with crab, crab rice, devil crab, that kind of thing I think is great. I really don't eat out as much as as I should, actually. And so I think, you know, like Jono said, Nairobi is, is one of my favorite spots. It was one of my favorite spots. I'm trying to think of where else I've been recently. Oh, I like all the quick and dirties. Like I find all of the places where it's like a mother and her children (laughs) working at a restaurant. So there's this place that I took Jono to a few months ago. They make tacos. And it's like this little Mexican joint and people go in there for lunch. And we were in the area recording the audio for the book, actually. And we went there twice in four days. I like to find places like that. There's another Greek restaurant that's in the same area. And that was pretty good. We went there twice. (laughs) Listen, if you go any place twice in a week, (laughs) that means that the food is what I call hidden. So (laughs) to go and say, okay, we're going to go back. That That's very, very telling. Mm-hmm. But I just learned a new term from you, Mashama. You said quick and dirty. So if it's like <laughs> a family-owned business, is that what it is? Is that what a quick and dirty is? No, I mean... Uh, My grandmother used to use that term all the time, and it was for small places. There's not really a lot of indoor seating. It's almost like takeout, but you know the food is homemade, right? Got it. And so she would call that a quick and dirty. So you go in, you place your order, you sit in your car, you wait for your stuff, you get it, you take it home, and you don't have to cook anything. You don't have to mess up any pots and you just kind of put some stuff on some plates. It was quick and dirty. You just kind of throw out your disposables and you keep it moving. I love that. I can think of several quick and dirties and tell grandmother if she is still here. Thank you for that term because it will be used. If not, it's in honor of her. Um, (laughs) I know several of those. That's actually an amazing term. And that's a wrap on season two of Let's Go Together a podcast by Travel and Leisure. I'm Kelly Edwards, and I want to thank you for listening to our podcast over the last few months. As the world begins to reopen little by little, we hope we've inspired you in some way to try something new on your next big trip. Be sure to follow Let's Go Together on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show this season, We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and review.
Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Lena Beck Sillison, and Marvin Yu. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks also to the team at Travel and Leisure, Deanne Kurzerski, Nina Ruggiero, and Tanner Saunders. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag. And you can find me at Kelly Set Go.